you're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 312 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Nick is joining me again today. We're going to dive into some topics that we are currently focused on. I should note that this episode is being recorded on Monday, March 23rd, in case the pandemic situation changes before this episode airs. What is new with you, Nick? Hey, Brittany. Uh, great to be talking with you again. You know, uh, here in Belfast, you know, with everything that's going on as programmers, life still moves forward, right? You know, with uh, our careers and just working from home, or as I've always done that. I'm pleased to say that I can't give the details of who yet, but in the last week I've inked a contract with a new employer. Um, That was something we were looking into. I was contracting for a number of months while we moved to Northern Ireland, and I've just wrapped up the job search, and I gotta say, having put my feelers out in the market, Ruby is doing better than ever, even with the current economic climate. People are hiring remote, on-site, all over for not just Rails, but Ruby as well, so it's It's kind of fun to have that look. So with everything going on, have you seen an increased interest in remote-only roles? Yeah, definitely. So I'd say I I first ever poked my nose out into the the world of Ruby in 14, 15. And oh yeah, it was so much on-site, CS degrees still. And now I would say none of them required CS degrees and almost a majority remote and even the ones that weren't totally remote there's a lot of partially remote teams and even in the middle of the interviewing processes a lot of companies were were continuing but just switching to have no on-site interviews at all right even for some remote gigs would have an on-site interview so it sounds like they're they're handling it pretty well and i think a lot of people who always thought about remote uh, but never really considered it are taking it very seriously now now, one thing that I always keep in mind and something that I see that Opti Grimm and both Cassidy Williams have been highlighting is that interviewing for a new job is practically a full-time job in itself. Was that the experience that you had? Oh, yeah, it, it definitely is. And I you almost have to go into it with an attitude of like... Um, I don't know. I not not to not not to go into relationships, but it's like a marriage. You you don't need them all to work out. You just need one, right? And you have all these people you're talking to at once. It's kind of like dating, and you have wildly different experiences, right? So, I'll give you a good example. When I first started in Ruby, I, I didn't do great at coding challenges. Um, nowadays, I would pass four out of five, maybe relatively well. But even so, there's the same day where I got the best feedback I'd ever gotten on my code. It was really heartwarming. And then on a different challenge, the most harsh, like 500 word rebuke I've ever seen in my life, right? And it was just a different challenge, different day. And it is like a full-time job. That was with me committing a tremendous amount, yeah, probably 40 hours a week uh, into the process. And it's not that I applied to 100 places, It's just if you're interviewing for four or five entities at the same time, each entity is going to want maybe five to six stages, which could be interviews and coding challenges and pairing. And then each stage will, you know, take about half a week to find out the result, half a week to schedule, a week until it commences. And you're sitting there, you know, I was still interviewing with companies from December um, when when I got my offer from this other one. So it's 
it was a little disheartening um, it, considering that I didn't really get any bad results or feedback it was it was very hard and I'm so grateful that Avdi and others have publicly posted about it because Avdi's so far above me in skill and if he's feeling the weight of it the search then I don't feel alone. So yeah, if anybody out there is looking, don't think it's the market. Don't think it's your skills. It's just there's a lot of desire for Rubius out there. It just takes a really long time and a lot of effort to, to get across the finish line these days. No, I totally agree. And it's such a huge stressor that you want to make sure that there's a good culture fit as well. But it can be incredibly taxing if you're currently working a job. And it, it's, a, it's a funny thing because you want to have a job, you want to be coming from that position of strength so that when you're looking for a new job, you have that as, you know, your quote unquote fallback. But a lot of the developers that are getting let go because of COVID-19, they don't have a job and so they can devote that time, but they might also be balancing home stuff where they might be taking care of children or trying to increase their education. So it can really be a lot in order to find that new job. Yep, you're, you're completely right. It's a lot of effort. The only advice I could give is if you have a really good lead with a company you're interested in, um, don't stop searching just because it's going well with them because it could take you a month to go through even if aggressively all six stages. And if you get rejected at the final stage, which is very, very common, you know, you can soar through, but it might just not have a role for you. Then you have to start completely at ground zero. So a lot of people I know would be afraid to interview for others because like, what if I get two offers at the same time? That's a great problem to have. Um, but then if you do get a... a, a a rejection late and you're three interviews in with another company you don't feel like you've lost all that ground and yeah I had to write a few letters to people saying I'm sorry I can't continue with the process I like you guys but I, I need to get to work um, but that's that's the position you need to be in but obviously you've, you've spoken on this quite a bit you know the, the this area of the Rubius life and it's it's an interesting one it's not one that we go into every day is it no, it's really not. And it's not something that they prepare you for in school either. <laughs> Which really, there should be a required class in school, like how to be recruited and how to recruit yourself and, you know, really how to market yourself. I think that's something that a lot of developers are missing, unfortunately. A hundred percent. It's so, you know, such an unregulated new industry, you know, anybody with a bit of money or a friend with some money, you know, a few million angel investment can start tech company even with no experience and start hiring developers today. Right. And that means you can, but then there's these big mature companies, your GitHub's and Shopify's out there that have very robust and mature processes that are cared for by their HR and everything. So you just got to know you're going to have wildly different experiences. And I, I'm, again, so grateful to Avdi because there's so many points that I wanted to write a blog about an experience, but it's like the unspoken thing. If you have a poor experience and you go onto Twitter and talk about it, uh, then people currently interviewing you might see it and be like, ooh, that person looks toxic. We're not going to hire them, right? But there's so much meat in there to be had. So I'm glad some people are speaking out. No, I agree. Now, I know this is absolutely your personal preference, but was there any sort of data points that you pointed to when you were interviewing with so many different companies that kind of pushed one ahead? Like, were you looking at Glassdoor recommendations? Were you looking at open source contributions, just general communication on Twitter? Yeah, so for me, I uh, looked at a few things. The, here's here's actually my, my list when people ask me. Number one is, uh, just the role, can I write Ruby primarily? It doesn't even have to be Rails, right? And then number two is what's the culture like around, you know, if there's an office near me, which would have to be Belfast, obviously, 
um, what was that culture like or really, really high up, what was their remote culture like? So I'd, I'd put a red flag if it was a company that had never hired remote before and I'd be the first remote employee. Um, because they're going to struggle to figure out that culture. But if they're a company that's at least 30 to 50% remote engineers, then I was like, okay, that that's definitely passed. Um, the third would be interest in the product um, because it's hard to work in a space if you can't be interested. Listen, I wasn't a, a shipping engineer or a, a registrar when I worked um, at Ocean's HQ for shipping, but I did find it really interesting, that problem space. Um and that's what, that's what really pushes them ahead. There's a couple companies that were really good on paper, but I would have been the only remote engineer. And I don't necessarily like being the remote person who's outside of the, the, the office culture all day. Um, so I, I can confirm, I will say at least this much, uh, not at the moment, but eventually the, the place I did sign for is on site. Um, but a flexible on-site is a lot of engineers uh, know. And that's I'm looking forward to being around people once... Um, this event lifts. The only other thing I'll say is, I don't know if you want to put this in the show notes, but a resource I didn't have to use. I did compile a, a list of all the companies uh, who were at RubyConf, the last one, who are currently hiring remote. Um, maybe that'll be of use to somebody, but we'll check in on that. Yeah, we'll definitely add that to the show notes. So speaking of conferences, unfortunately, we've seen a ton of conference cancellations. I am so fortunate that I made it back from Paris RB in time. I would really say within maybe a week or two, and that conference probably would have been on the chopping block. So I'm glad that I was able to go and get back safely. But um, we've seen that RailsConf has been canceled. Uh, We discussed two episodes ago that Brighton is pivoting their plan, and I'm really excited about that, especially uh, for the book that that, that will be coming out. And so uh, definitely check out episode 310 to get more information about that. And then Ruby Kaiji went ahead and just rescheduled towards the fall, which I thought was a clever idea. Yeah, completely. You know, we love conferences. I think you and I in particular, it's podcasting conferences have special place in our heart, right? Um, And I think the community jumped on this really quick. It's hard for everyone. I mean, I wasn't, because I was moving, I wasn't scheduled to speak or putting in CFPs at this point. But, you know, thoughts are just with all those folks and, and, and what they're doing. Really excited for Brighton Ruby, uh, folks. I think they won't be the only conference that ends up doing something interesting. But remember at the turn of the year, I had that tweet about all the conferences of the year to keep an eye for, and I was adding to it. And I think just about all of them, except for, I don't know what, what Yuruko is doing. I know they're end of August, so they're kind of on the knife edge, right? Because um, we don't know where we're going to be. We'll be listening to this in the future, and we'll know. But um, it's definitely hit the conference uh, circuit big time and we just have to find creative ways to keep the community going yes and obviously there were a ton of people who wanted to give talks and who had gotten accepted at RailsConf, but we also need to accommodate possibly the people who had great cfps and they didn't get into conferences or people like you and i who actually were not submitting at the time is there a place that we are going to be able to share that content maybe over the next couple of months because we are going to be stuck at home and i think really getting into a regimen of consuming that kind of content should be something that we might want to look into yeah, completely. And, uh, you know, I think the listeners here know about podcasts, but definitely be sinking a lot more time. Because, you know, sometimes when life gets busy, you can't hit every podcast you want to listen to. So um, we'll definitely have time 
to to do that and the digital content i'm all over the bright and ruby one I'd, i've never had a physical copy of uh wise poignant guide and that's something that i'd really like to have so yeah i think that's a really special gift and i can't wait to order run as well so speaking of rails i know that you have been a bit busy with rails <laughs> so i'd love to hear about your commit yeah so i had another <laughs> so you know, Rails is such a, a big uh, code base. It's exciting if you ever even get a single commit put in that isn't like fixing a typo. Um, and I had a decent sized one about a year ago, which was great, but I always remembered that it was documentation, which again is super, super important. But I always had that itch to add something to the actual API and the, the core uh, Rails uh, uh, code base. And I, the, the backstory was, and you may have, talked about it, or folks may have seen it on Ruby Weekly, was Eileen Chatel and another engineer, I'm trying to remember the name, uh, from the core team, put in a new feature for horizontal sharding of databases. And I'd always worked on relatively small Rails applications, you know, a lot of business logic, but not very complex for databases. And I, you know, I had an interview question about sharding about a week before that. And I thought, okay, this is my chance to dive into some sharding. And I wanted to play with it, but it wasn't on a release yet, obviously. And it was just on a, the master commit. And I couldn't find a quick and easy way to just test out this new feature. Uh, and I thought, you know, I wish there was a, you know, Rails new has its option flags. I wish there was a way to do hyphen hyphen master and actually point to the master Rails branch and use the latest commit now. Um, there is there is an option flag called hyphen hyphen edge. Uh, and you'd think that'd be Edge because a lot of blog articles refer to the latest commit as Edge Rails, but it's not. Um, it actually points to the latest stable uh, patch release. So that's interesting. Unless there's a weird Edge case that it doesn't, but most of the time it does. Um, so I went into the Rails code base. I actually weirdly listened to a talk that I can share with you 2015 from Eileen Uchatel about committing to Rails and how to do it and the best way to run the tests and and do what you got to do. And I uh, followed her guidance, which five years from now still works perfectly fine. Walked through the code base, found where all the other flags were and slowly incorporated mine, which now makes it that if you, I, I don't know if this is available yet, obviously, but it's coming. If you do Rails new hyphen hyphen master, you can straight away play with all the, co the commits that are coming out. So if you see a Ruby weekly article, about a new feature that got introduced this week, you can actually play with it, you know, straight away. So yeah, it's it's a, uh, and and I got comments from all the you know, Casper um, Tim's Hansen and and Rafael Franca and uh, Matthew Draper on it as well. So I felt quite excited. There's been good discussion around the feature, and it it might change a little bit too. So that's my commit. That is so cool. I mean, you should be so proud of yourself to put yourself out there and to be working with people like that. I mean, it's just very incredibly exciting. So at this point, we're not sure if it's going to be in a patch version of 6.0 or if it'll be included in 6.1. Exactly. So it was briefly committed to uh, backported to the latest uh, master, which doesn't happen very often. But Raphael said he really wanted to get the feature out there. But then Matthew Draper brought up a good question, which was, you know, you call this command. So Rails new builds a new app, right? The whole directory. Um, but if you call this command, it actually points your gem file to the master Rails branch. But it might build your Rails directory off an older version. It just it just affects the um, 
the gem file, which nine times out of ten won't mess up the feature you're trying to do because the director doesn't massively change. Um, but, you know, a lot of it's in the guts of the gems. But he did make a good point there. So it's been taken out of the back port and it's currently queued up for six, the next patch. Um, but I'm working on another PR, which will address his concerns and do an interesting hack that I'll probably just have to write a blog article about that will do everything brand new. No matter what version of Rails you're on, it'll give you the full directory and gem file and everything from the latest uh, master. So working on that now, just making it better, but really good analysis from some very smart people. So I'm assuming that every time you commit to Rails, you need to run the full Rails test suite, which I have actually never done. So I'm assuming you've done that before. What is that like? So I didn't actually, so I, my methodology for this was I would run the full test suite on Travis on my GitHub repo for, cause it would run against the, once you have the PR open, but then I would run tests like say that I've written or actually another developer jumped in and wrote some tests for me in a separate PR to be really nice. So it's a great community. Uh, cause I, if you've ever looked at Rails tests, they aren't, it's weird, right? Because they're like gem style tests, but then they're very involved. Um, and we're, I'm used to my R spec tests or my mini test tests of normal apps. Um, but you just figure out which directory applies to the area you're changing. And you probably add your own tests if you can figure it out. Again, it's quite hard, at least for me at this stage. And you uh, just run your rake test, you know, slightly different syntax. And it and it, and it works for you. But no, I, I don't know if I've never run the whole thing on my machine. That'd be something to try. Maybe leave my laptop open one night and see how long it takes. I'm sure it takes a while. I'm sure. I've written many tests around Rails engines since that's the majority of the work that I currently do in my day-to-day -day life. Wow. But I've yet to run Rails itself. But I imagine it's kind of similar where you're standing up dummy applications. And dummy always seems like such a mean word, but it is true. You are standing up kind of fake applications and running tests against them. Yep, absolutely. Like uh, that was another thing from Eileen's talk that I found very useful. Like, because if you've never done anything like it, it's just very different. You know, it's like, oh, here's how you stand up a fake, you know, uh, in memory SQLite connection to do something with an active record test and create a, you know, I honestly, a lot of this stuff I won't remember off the top of my head either. I have a little folder on my laptop that I've been filling up with all these things I want to remember when I, whenever I'm on Rails Core. And it's slightly harder, right? Because 3,000 people have committed to Rails Core, but there's, what, millions maybe of Rubyists? Um, so it's not an area that there's going to be a lot of great writing on. And yeah, I'll, uh, I'd love to learn more about it. And I imagine with your experience with Rails engines, you have a lot of good experience with how to stand those up and test things. No, you're right. That's po very possibly true. Well, um, I currently at work have been continuing to work on my Google Pay uh, implementation. We deployed it into production. Passbook uh, iPhone's uh, version has been working great. But unfortunately, with Google Pay in production and production only, and we know how much we love that as developers when we only have production only issues, uh, Google Pay was timing out. And so I was running into this issue where it would sometimes work and it would sometimes not, which is not great. 
And so I ended up doing another deep dive into the code, refactoring. And then when I was getting to the point where I was completely frustrated, my boss mentioned to me that when he was setting up the Google Play Google Pay implementation, he had gotten an email from a Google developer saying that we could reach out for help. And so I was very lucky that we had that email. So I reached out and Google actually replied, which was great. And I spent some one-on-one time working with Google on this implementation because it's really something that not a lot of developers are using. And so it helped me really refactor my code. It turns out that the authorization token was um, due to network timeouts was just shorting out. And so I just basically have to generate that token more. So it was a good lesson learned. And I, I have mentioned on the podcast before that I want to open source my implementation for Google Pay. And honestly, because I have all this um, home time now, I'm no longer teaching my fitness classes or going to roller derby practice or really leaving the house much at all. I really do have some time to focus on some open source work. That's fantastic. And I'd be interested to hear when you're building something and you know that you'd like to open source your implementation, how has that kind of affected some of your design decisions? Like, are there occasionally things that you'd like, oh, I want to do this. Oh, no, that that may not work on the open source version or be unclear. Or do you have a, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's such a good question. So the way that I'm currently doing it now is I'm setting up the gem structure and I'm looking at some gems that I have a lot of respect for, like HTTP party, devise, um, the Instagram client. So I'm really trying to look at both gems that are well used in our community, but I'm also trying to look at API wrapper specific gems because this is what I'm really going after at this point. And because I'm using such a small subset of the Google Pay API, I'm going to start with that. So event ticketing itself. But the idea is that you would be able to do things outside of event ticketing, like air, air airline tickets, or even be able to use it to pay for a transaction. And so I think, I think I'm going to do it basically one area at a time. So right now I'm focused on getting the gem structure up correctly and making sure that I can um, create those uh, authorization tokens reliably. The next thing that I'm really going to have to dive into, and I'd love your take on this, Nick, is that it's actually quite difficult to get started with Google Pay as a developer in itself. You have to go and create a service account and really dive into Google's documentation and download files that you need to include in your repository. And so I think V1 of this gem will be instructing developers how to do that manually. And then down the line, what I'd like to be able to do is create some sort of tool where developers can do that automatically. Yeah, that, that's a really good point you bring up, and it's one I didn't think of, but not now I, I can remember a bunch of times where if I was using a Ruby gem built by someone else uh, to, to help maybe wrap around something, a tooling that already exists, a lot of times it'll be assumed that I just know how to set up all the other things, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, Google Play, like I for me, that would be me, right? Like I've never interacted with it. And if I went there and, oh, have you ever been on some of these that would just have... And there would be like one tiny one word link in a corner at the bottom right of the page that you have to scan to find that links to a big wiki, but then that wiki is hard to find and use. And um, so I, I definitely like that you empathize with the developer from that perspective because most of your users will, or you know, uh, will probably be people who are just trying to figure this out, and you you will be the the ambassador and chaperone to to truth for them. And and yeah, even if it doesn't directly uh, interact with your Ruby code or affect it in the beginning that you know that top of that readme will probably 
be a good chance to save people a lot of heartache, right? Um, I've set up a few things, you know, with, in Google World, and every time it does involve me kind of having to slog it out and, you know, remember where I have to set this up, what page here, where my account hooks up there, and it, you're definitely going to have the best chance to, to help people out. And then they'll have your gem ready to go. And Oh, and also, um, I think that's really wise uh, looking at some of your favorite gems for their structure, because I think whenever you're trying to do something that may not be do something you do every day, like setting up a gem, you know, architecture and structure, or maybe say a thing in Rails, it's so good that we have these wonderful open source examples that we can just look at and see how they tackled it, wh where they expect things to be, how they organize their code, um, especially with gems. I, I bet that's been really helpful. Yeah, I spend the majority of my work working in Ruby on Rails applications or Rails engines. And so the majority of my work is not in gems. And it's kind of refreshing to be in a different kind of mindset because then once I implement the gem, I'm sure I'm going to adjust my Rails uh, code within the application to be able to use that gem, of course, so I could be, you know, customer one. But it kind of feels, you know, getting started with Google Pay. Have you watched the Great British Baking Show? Yes, I have. Yeah, it's it's. I imagine it's big there. It's obviously quite a big uh, show out here as well. I love that show. I love that show, and because I have more time, and of course I have a Netflix account, um, I've been crushing through that a lot. <laughs> and it kind of feels like a technical challenge where they are told to make a cookie, and the first instruction is just make the dough. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, no ingredients, no instructions, you know, just kind of assuming that you know what to do. And so I really want to make sure that as I'm creating this gem and I'm documenting it, that it is very, very beginner friendly. That's the best analogy I've ever heard because it's like make a gem. Uh, okay. Make a gem. <laughs> but do I do I use the bundler command to generate it, or do I do it vanilla via Ruby gems, or do I? Uh, and then where do I put the code? Yes. Oh, right. Um, because it would be so easy to just put step one: get all of your Google Pay certificates, and that would be the end of it. And trust me, that would take you several days to figure it out. Oh dear. Oh, that's, that's that's not wild. You know, I I was in a, a smaller situation like that. Um, you know, my early Ruby days obviously wrote a couple tiny, not impressive gems. You know, just Wild West style. You know, and then I, I wrote. I don't even remember which which this might have been my performance logger. Um, I did I did a small version of that. I looked at our friend Jose Albernos had that Telegram bot gem, uh, which is also an API wrapper. And since I knew that his gem wasn't huge or titanic like the Rails gem, um, I, I could actually go through how he organized his code. And you know, obviously, a lot of respect for him with his work with Shopify. Um, and that literally, I almost felt like I was stealing, but I'm sure it's just how the code was expected to be laid out. And I used that to kind of inspire some of my future gem layouts as well. So, um, that, so I stole his cookie recipe is basically what I'm saying. That's fantastic, and I'm sure he'd be very honored to hear that. So I wanted to cap off the episode with kind of an exciting uh, announcement for our space, and that is the fact that NPM was acquired by GitHub, which we all know, of course, also means they were acquired by Microsoft. Oh my gosh, the chain keeps going. The chain does keep going, and, you know, I... I think it's great news because I think that's going to make NPM more stable and it's going to always be available and they claim always going to be free and they want to invest in the registry infrastructure and platform, which is always good news and improve the core experience and of course, engage with the community. 
So for for those listeners and maybe 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 not myself um, who are familiar with npm in the community but may not understand as clearly npm the the entity's role in the community would you have a bit more um uh, illumination on that for for those listeners so from what i understand it was founded in 2014 and they raised almost 19 million dollars on a 48 million dollar post valuation which is pretty amazing and so basically for six years in the grind of a startup they had dreams that were too big to dare to hope for and so they started out um, as i believe an open source project and then they were able to raise funding in order to support it which is kind of the dream i think of a lot of those developer tools out there does kind of see you know i remember there's a little uh reticence with the microsoft acquisition but i'd say you know github's doing better than ever fantastic leader in the community and obviously it is, you know, as a Rails Ruby person, I always remember that with GitHub, you know, that's what they're built on. And the fact that that company now owns the uh, NPM, which is so big, obviously, in the JavaScript community. Um, it's, it's a nice kind of uh, assembly of really important organizations for us. Yeah, so it sounds like they're going to integrate GitHub and NPM to improve the security of the open source software supply chain. But the most interesting take that I heard about this acquisition is that Microsoft really is owning the JavaScript community because they've got GitHub, which is definitely the largest holder of open source repositories. Now you have NPM for JavaScript Package Manager. VS Code is installed on so many developers' computers. And then, of course, Microsoft invented TypeScript. And so they're just really a dominant player in the JavaScript community now. That's a really good point. They've, they've kind of uh, taken their community uh, leadership role very seriously for the what, half a decade now, I think, was when they really pivoted. Um, and they've got just about everything but their own JavaScript framework, right? Or do they have one of those as well? I can't, I can't remember. You know, I don't think so. So, I mean, that might be the next thing that we see. Or listeners, if we're wrong, definitely tweet at us. Yes, the, the, the new competitor to React or, or Vue will be coming from Microsoft 2021. They're working on it right now, right? So there you there go. You go. <laughs> no, There's just... Nick's predictions. <laughs> uh, with that, we are going to wrap up the episode. Nick, thank you so much for joining me again, and I hope you stay healthy, happy, and safe. Congratulations on the new job. Thank you very much, and uh, stay safe as well. Thank you.